previously on Chicano Squad. One night in 1977, Houston police officers beat 23-year-old Latino veteran Jose Campos Torres and threw him into Buffalo Bayou, where he later drowned. His death shocked Houston's Latino community and a movement demanding justice began to build. Now, an entire community waited. Frogmen from the Houston Police Department's underwater search and recovery team were back in Buffalo Bayou again today beneath the Commerce Street Bridge. They were looking for a wallet. The wallet used to belong to Joe Torres. But the shroud of secrecy that is hanging over this case, what exactly happened between Torres and Denson at Friday morning at 1 o'clock, is about as clear as the waters of Buffalo Bayou. The shroud of secrecy is a perfect way to put it. This clip from KPRC in Houston is noteworthy for two reasons. First, it illustrates the growing suspicion, at least by the media, that the public was not getting the full story on what had happened that night. And second, by its very existence, it shows that Jose Campos Torres' death was a big deal. It was leading the nightly news. As questions mounted in the case, the tension between a Latino community looking for answers and a police department that wasn't giving any grew. And one Houston police officer would find himself caught right in the middle of it. I was standing there and this woman came up to me and I could feel her hurt. This is Cecil Mosqueda. At the time of the story he's recounting in 1977, Cecil was just a rookie cop working his beat. And she started cursing me out. And, oh, yo, Y'all cops, you crooked cops. When he wasn't on patrol, Cecil worked an extra job in a bar, which is where he was on this night. She said, you know who I am, don't you? I said, no, ma'am, I don't know who you are. I'm the mother. Cecil was face to face with Jose Campos Torres' mother. I had a good ear, and I, I was listening to her. I said, well, ma'am, I said, I, I really feel bad for you. I feel bad for what happened to your son. I fell for her, and I told her, I said, ma'am, I said, I apologize for the officer. They should have never done that. I'm sorry. I said, not all officers are like that. They weren't. But in Houston at that time, there had been too many so-called bad apples. Enough for an orchard, really. Cecil hadn't known the officers who'd beaten up Jose Campos Torres. As a new officer, he tried to keep his head down and learn as much as he could. There was enough attention on him already as just one of about 150 Mexican-American police officers in a department of 2,800. The Hispanic community was up in arms. I'm not going to defend the officers. I mean, you can't defend anything like that. He just, I said, I feel bad. I mean, what do you say? What do you really say? There's nothing you can say. Cecil was caught in the middle of two identities, an all-too-common problem that many of us from immigrant families struggle with as we try to find our path in the country we live in while still staying connected to our roots. In Cecil's case, his struggle was with two groups vying for his loyalty, his brothers in blue and his literal brothers, his hermanos, in the neighborhood he grew up in. In 1977, what Officer Cecil Mosqueda didn't know, what nobody could know yet, is that the death of Jose Campos Torres would change the Houston Latino community's relationship with the police in ways no one ever imagined.
I'm Cristela Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. En esta ciudad, hay necesidad, It was Mother's Day, Sunday, May 8, 1977, when the body of Jose Campos Torres was found in the murky waters of Buffalo Bayou. Less than 24 hours later, Carlos Elliott, one of the police officers that was there that night, broke down and told his father, also an officer, exactly what had happened. Carlos Elliott had been with the officers that had responded to a call for help from a cantina. The bar manager had tried to throw Jose out of the bar, but he had refused, and the two men began to fight. Soon, the police arrived. Jose taunted the officers. The officers decided to take him to a remote parking lot they called The Hole. After beating Jose in that lot, they tried to book him into the Harris County Jail. But deputies noticed cuts and bruises on Jose's body and told the officers to take him to a hospital first. KHOU News. According to our source, the officers decided not to take Torres to the hospital. Instead, the patrolman allegedly took their suspect to a secluded spot along Buffalo Bayou. Our source says the officers decided to teach Torres a lesson. This clip mentions a source. Once Carlos talked, the story was out. As this clip illuminates, unlike so many cases that had come before, someone was talking this time. And not just to Chief Pappy Bond, to the press. Back at the hole, Carlos took off Jose's handcuffs, and the five other officers beat Jose some more. Jose had been training to be an army ranger, and some amount of that training seemed to kick in here. He refused to submit to the beating, which made the officers angrier. Carlos Elliott stepped away for a moment, returning to the car to take a radio call, and the next thing he knew, he heard a splash and saw a figure in the water of the bayou below. People in Houston differed on whether they believed Jose was pushed into the bayou or challenged to swim across it. But either way, he drowned in Buffalo Bayou's water while Houston police officers stood nearby. The press was all over the story. Jose's clean-cut, handsome military photo was making the rounds on Houston TV and newspapers. Even if he had been kicked out of the U.S. Army due to a drinking problem, it didn't matter. The image was powerful. And now Carlos Elliott, a Houston police officer, was the one making the allegations. Pappy Bond had begun his job as the chief of HPD as a cheerful and portly head of the department. But just over a year into his tenure, he looked worn out. As the facts unfolded, Pappy Bond said, There is not one single explanation for these acts of misconduct, and the more I look at it, the madder I get. Jose Campos Torres' family was struggling with the unanswered questions around his death. And as conflict erupted between the Latino community and the Houston police, they were also being thrust into the spotlight. 
He was trying to, you know, really do something for himself, trying to become somebody. And what happens to him? That's one of Jose's brothers being interviewed by local station KHOU. In the days after the discovery of his body, Jose's entire family was visited and followed often by news cameras asking them how they felt. Despite their pain, they felt it was up to them, while the police and the press were listening to tell Jose's story. Here's his father. I wish that it could stop. I wish it would be the last time that it happened to any young kid, you know, to be beaten up like this by a police just because he says something bad or something, you know? Just because a man tells you something, there's no reason to kill him. For Latinos in Houston, this was a familiar story. In just the four years before Jose Campos Torres' death, from 1973 to 1977, Houston police had shot and killed 28 people. And in almost all of the cases, officers were not indicted on criminal charges. One past HPD chief, Herman Short, who also happened to be friends with segregationist George Wallace, was particularly problematic. During Short's tenure, a journalist, Ron Leitner, had infiltrated the KKK in Houston. In a controversial expose, he alleged that the Klan's ranks were filled with HPD officers. Short assailed the story and denied the allegations. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, of police department it was. But for activist Travis Morales and plenty of other activists in Houston, there wasn't much difference between the two organizations. During Short's run, rifts between the department and communities of color in Houston only deepened including an ongoing public feud and a fatal shootout with members of the People's Party too, a local organization affiliated with the Black Panthers. And they were all adding up to a frustrating inheritance for Chief Bond. On May 6, Bond announced that he wanted to resign from the police department. He wanted to run for mayor. But two days later, Jose Campos Torres' body was found and everything changed. The Harris County DA sat down with Pappy Bond and the top brass at the department to discuss the response to Jose Campos Torres' death. The meeting took eight hours, ending after 1 a.m. Chief Bond made an announcement at a news conference. The normally personable and informal chief sounded restrained as he read from a prepared statement. With the assistance of the Harris County District Attorney's Office and the City Attorney's Office, our investigation has reached the point where I have filed murder charges against Officer Terry W. Denson. Murder. And Officer Denson wasn't the only one being charged. Eventually, Officer Stephen Orlando would also be charged with murder. Officers Lewis Kinney, Joseph Janis, and Glenn Brickmeyer were all suspended from duty. So, with the exception of Carlos Elliott, Every officer involved that night had been suspended, fired, or charged. This was unprecedented in HPD's history. The department's long history of racism was part of why officers were rarely charged with misconduct. But there had never been any official system for scrutinizing an officer's behavior either. Houston at the time was the fifth largest city in the nation. But unlike other major cities, its police department had no internal affairs division. That changed in the days after Jose Campos Torres' death. 
Immediately, the new Internal Affairs Unit was flooded with complaints. Travis Morales again. This was premeditated murder. This was a conscious thing that they did. And this is what angered people so much. The feeling among the Latino community in Houston was that it was too little too late. The department had a long history of discrimination against minorities. The first Hispanic officer hadn't even been admitted into HPD until 1950. Ten years later, there were only five. In 1970, just 13. And by 1977 and the death of Jose Campos Torres, there were only 161 Latino officers to serve a city with 200,000 Latino residents. There were plenty of reasons for this disparity. The department rejected 19 of every 20 candidates, some for a qualification that all officers be at least 5 foot 8 inches tall. For some of the Latino candidates that didn't make the height requirement, this felt like systemic racism. In truth, by 1977, the Houston Police Department didn't need any help keeping would-be officers out. The department's poor reputation and lack of connection to the community was doing it for them. Morale was low and recruitment was suffering. Turnover was common. The slew of police brutality cases that had gone unprosecuted had painted HPD as a violent and untamed force, and it was a reputation that traveled across the country. In 1977, a story in the Washington Post called the department a blue army and the most violent and unchecked such force in the United States. In an attempt to change the narrative, the Houston Police Union released a bumper sticker commemorating a narcotics officer who was killed on duty in 1976. It read, The badge means you care. The effort backfired spectacularly. A popular Houston punk band named AK-47 released what would become the band's biggest hit single. On the cover of the record was an image of officers in riot gear with raised rifles and an edited version of the bumper sticker which read, The badge means you suck. And below it, the names of nine people killed by Houston police, including Jose Campos Torres. I don't think you could go anywhere in the city that you would know what had happened. Johnny Mata was a representative of the League of United Latin American Citizens. As the grand jury started hearing the case, you had marches and protests and demonstrations and riots. And Travis Morales was front and center at them. We'd have demonstrations where we would be chanting, Joe Torres dead, cops go free, that's what the rich call democracy. There were rallies outside of the police department in City Hall, and chants calling for an end to police brutality echoed off of the glass buildings downtown. As tension mounted from all sides, the pressure on Pappy Bond was overwhelming. The Jose Campos Torres case just about ruined him. He canceled his plans to run for mayor, and in fact, Pappy would commit suicide a few years later. His replacement, Chief Harry Caldwell, was handpicked from HPD's ranks to take over the department. As the cases against the five officers charged in connection with Jose Campos Torres' death moved through the court system, some charges were dropped and modified. Carlos Elliott was the only officer there at the hole that night who was never actually charged. By July, two months after Jose's death, 
only two officers were set to stand trial for murder and a third for misdemeanor assault. The other two officers who had participated in beating Jose had been given immunity in return for their testimony. The case was generating a lot of heat in the Houston press, but the constant publicity became a double-edged sword. Before the policeman's trial could start, their defense attorney argued that there was no chance they'd get a fair trial in Houston, since everyone in town had undoubtedly heard about the case. A judge agreed. The trial was moved to Huntsville, about 70 miles north of Houston. Jose's sister, Janie Torres, who was only 10 at the time, remembers when they got the news. All my family was so angry. You know, it wasn't gonna be fair for us. There was no way that we could possibly get any justice coming out of Huntsville, of all places. The largest employer in Huntsville was the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. It was also the home of the state's execution chamber and death row. The correction system was the biggest employer in town, responsible for employing nearly one out of five of Huntsville's 20,000 residents. In some cities, a jury might be more sensitive to the fact that Jose was a veteran or a minority or see his death as a civil rights violation. Not in Huntsville. When the jury was chosen, it was seven women and five men, all white, and one of them worked for the Texas Department of Corrections. Each day, activists like Travis Morales rotated in and out of the courtroom, which drew such a large crowd that they had to move the trial to an auditorium at Sam Houston State University. And each day, Jose Campos Torres's family shuttled the 70 miles to and from Huntsville. All three officers working with the prosecution, Brinkmeyer, Kinney, and Elliot, testified to what had happened that night in excruciating and gruesome detail. There was a scale model of the scene at the hole, complete with blue plastic police officer figurines and a red figurine to represent Jose Campos Torres. Travis remembers listening to Elliot recount the scene to the court. Let's see if this went back and swim. That just concentrated so much about the racism and the white supremacy that just permeated the Houston Police Department that they would say something like that as they threw someone to their death to drown after they mercilessly beat him half to death and then throw him in the bayou. For the Torres family, it was brutal to hear. And as testimony dragged on, Janie could sense that it was taking an enormous toll on her parents. I remember seeing my mom getting sicker and sicker. When they did that to her son, her firstborn, they took my mother away also. Finally, after four weeks, the trial concluded. Now, Jose Campos Torres's family and an entire community waited. On October 6, 1977, the jury had reached a verdict. Jose's family and activists like Travis Morales crowded into the courtroom to hear the jury's decision. Even more shocking than the Torres incident itself has been the verdict and sentence assessed the two former officers by the all-white, seven-woman, five-man jury panel. This clip and the others you'll hear from come from a program called Reflejos del Barrio, or Reflections from the Barrio, produced by Carlos Cabillo. And the voice of the reporter, it might sound familiar to you. It's John Quiñones, now an ABC correspondent and host of What Would You Do? At the time, Quiñones was a radio host looking to break into TV. The documentary special Carlos and John put together on the Jose Campos Torres case aired over two nights in Houston. 
On this tape, a restrained but clearly shocking Yones outlines the verdict in the case. They found Denson and Orlando guilty of negligent homicide, a Class A misdemeanor punishable at most by a one-year prison sentence and a $2,000 fine. The officers had been found guilty, but not of murder, only a misdemeanor. Prosecutors pleaded with the jury for the maximum sentence. But not so. The jury last night granted both men probated sentences, meaning Denson and Orlando will not go to jail. The state has no redress from the verdict and sentence. It cannot be appealed. No jail time. Just one year of probation. And as for their fine, it was one dollar. You heard that correctly. One dollar. Latinos in Houston were livid, and it wasn't just them. Justice cries out and demands some type of redress, and I can assure you that's not one dollar and a probated sentence. That clip from KHOU's coverage of the trial features a visibly upset and agitated police chief, Harry Caldwell. KHOU was also there to capture the protest, which erupted outside of the courthouse. The Mexican-American community is in uproar. Today, hundreds took to the streets to demonstrate against what they call the insult of the light sentences. A human life has been lost by police officers. You can hear the energy and anger there that day. And they talked to Jose's mother, Margaret Torres, who was somber but also simmering with anger. It was very unjust what they did. That they convict people for any little bit of thing, any burglary. They convict them for 10 years, 15 years. And here they are trying to get away with murder just because they're cops. If you would have been a Mexican-American doing this to a cop, they would have, you would have been on death row. Travis Morales again. I mean, that was, that was infuriating. That was when people in Houston started wearing dollar bills pinned to their shirts or their blouses to represent the fact that the courts had decided the life of a Chicano was worth $1. That detail, the $1 fine, came up again and again as we researched this story. And we immediately began to organize. We got together with a bunch of other organizations, and we, we had a rally in March in Houston. We, we were not going to accept this. We were still demanding Justice for Jose Campos Torres jail the murdering cops for life. We were not backing down on that demand. Across the country, people had followed the story of Jose Campos Torres' death, and the push for justice began to spread. On a visit to Houston, we took a ride with activist Carlos Calvillo out to the hole, the place where Jose Campos Torres had been beaten that night. You could uh, imagine a weedy lot, dirt, and you could walk right up to the edge and look down into the bayou. No rails, nothing. We could go over there, which is actually where he was murdered and pushed into the bayou there. As he walked, he remembered the impact Jose's death had on the public imagination. There were protests and marches, sure, but also poems, artwork, and even songs. There was uh, corridos written about Joe Campos Torres and encompassed everything that happened to him that night. Murió Jose Campos Torres. La policía lo mató. A corrido is a ballad. Most of the corridos I personally grew up listening to were sung in Spanish and set to polka-style Mexican music that had German roots. When I was growing up in South Texas, corridos were a popular genre, usually depicting a protagonist and tales of their life. 
and Jose Campos Torres was the hero that inspired many. They were banned from the radio because they were considered too provocative, you know. It would make people want to hate the cops or something. One Jose Campos Torres corrida we discovered was by Los Principes Negros, or the Black Princes, which we found in a Chicano music archive at UCLA called the Frontera Collection. Gentlemen, I'm going to tell you what happened here in Houston. Jose Campos Torres died. The police killed him. And of course, it's got that familiar German polka beat. Jose's story is forever immortalized in these ballads. It's one reason why, even more than 40 years later, it still has such an impact on so many people. Ghosts out here, even today, at midnight, you can walk over here and you can hear the, you know, fists hitting a body, the screams, and then you hear the splash of water. More after the break. While the state's case was disappointingly over, the Torres family's HPD terrors were not. Three days after the trial, Joe and Margaret Torres took their young daughters to an arcade in Houston, Zippy's Game Room. Joe was playing pool, as Janie remembers, and a young man they knew from the neighborhood named Alex was outside smoking a cigarette when a police sergeant showed up. And just jumped out of the car and drew his gun, and we see Alex just, like, put his hands up, you know. We're, we're looking out there, and we all froze. They looked through the big glass windows of the arcade. The policeman yelled at Alex from his patrol car. Alex did as he was told. So he's going down, going on one knee, and then going on the other knee, but his hand's still up. The officer had been using the open door of his patrol car as a protective shield. But then he started to walk towards Alex. The Torres family was stunned. Holy shit. And then he puts the gun to his head. And that's why my dad came out and told him, hey, 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 you don't have to do that to him. For Joe Torres Sr., something snapped. He couldn't stand by as a Houston police officer held a young man around the same age as his late son at gunpoint. My dad came out with a cue stick, but my dad's telling the cop, hey, you don't have to put that gun to that kid's head and this and that. It was crazy. All of a sudden, police came from everywhere. The officers threw Joe Torres to the ground and then struck him with a flashlight. As Margaret and the girls watched in horror, they feared the worst that they were about to lose yet another family member to the Houston Police Department. They were just, they just started grabbing us left and right. They threw my dad on the car. The cops even grabbed JD's mother. One cop put her arm up so high in the back and threw her against the car also. As Janie and her sisters screamed and cried, police separated the Torres family members. A family friend pleaded with the officers to let her take Janie and her sisters. Margaret and Joe Torres were arrested and charged with public intoxication. Six months later, they were found guilty by a municipal court judge and fined, Joe for $100 and Margaret for $50. They hired a lawyer to appeal their case, which was eventually dismissed. Back on the Jose Campos Torres case, activist Travis Morales wanted action, but faced opposition from others, who urged the public to have faith in the justice system. The politicians and the system were at work telling people, okay, now we're going to have the, f the federal government come in, or now we're going to have the feds come in and, 
and indict these cops, and then we'll get justice. Justice hadn't been served through the state's case. But, as you just heard Travis refer to, there could be a second chance on the federal level. Here's John Quinones from Reflejos del Barrio again. The only recourse left for those seeking stiffer penalties is federal prosecution. And at this point in time, that appears possible. Ruben Bonilla, the state director of LULAC, met with Justice Department officials yesterday in Washington, and he tells us he has been reasonably assured that the Justice Department will investigate the Torres case for civil rights violations. After the Huntsville trial played out, the Department of Justice was pressured to seek federal indictments, and a federal grand jury indicted three of the former officers involved. But the outcome of the federal trial didn't deliver the severe sentences that Jose Campos Torres' family and community had hoped for. In March 1978, the judge in the federal trial, Judge Ross Sterling, sentenced former officers Terry Denson, Joseph Janis, and Stephen Orlando to 10 years, then suspended the sentences and placed the men on probation for five years, with one year in prison. So all told, the men would face just one year and one day in federal prison. After all this struggle, a year of struggle, so little had been done to actually punish these cops and make an example that this can't happen again. A few days after Sterling's sentence, hundreds of people gathered in front of City Hall, many carrying banners or signs saying LULAC or People United to Fight Police Brutality. They filled the plaza, using loudspeakers to yell at the elected officials and decision-makers behind the marble facade. The Justice Department issued a harshly worded reprimand. As the New York Times reported, Judge Ross Sterling's sentences for the convictions were, quote, entirely inappropriate considering the offenses for which the defendants were convicted, unquote. The criticism seemed to be coming from all sides. A storm was building in Houston, and it wasn't even hurricane season yet. On the Sunday after Cinco de Mayo, May 7, 1978. It was a year after Jose had been killed, and Houston's Latino community had gathered as they did every year to commemorate the holiday. Among those at the park was Adrian Garcia. Today, he's a commissioner in Harris County, which encompasses Houston. Garcia remembers a charge in the air that day. I remember the conversation that my friends and I were having about how bad the police was, how they thought they saw some Hispanic cops who were sellouts. Travis Morales had also ventured out to Moody Park that day with other activists. They were equipped with banners and flyers, but were immediately hassled. About a half dozen or a dozen constables tried to keep us out. They weren't going to let us in. And more people than that came over and said, no, you, we want them in here, and demanded they let us in, so they had to back off. Travis's organization had continued to hold marches and rallies to protest the death of Jose Campos Torres. We were there all day, and people were coming up to our banner, which we had unfurled and, and standing up, taking pictures of their families with their kids. There was a certain pride in the fact that people had been fighting this all this time. After a long day, Travis and his peers left to go to a friend's house nearby for a barbecue. All day, the park had been jovial and festive. But when the sun went down around 7.30 that evening, everything started to change. 
the Latino community's collective anger had built up over the past year since Jose's murder. And now it simply had to get out. Anything could have set off the powder keg that night. Adrian Garcia says the fight began over a woman. I remember seeing this guy who was apparently intoxicated try to talk to a girl. And you could see her kind of ignoring him and waving him off. But he was persistent. So then the guy got, got engaged. And uh, then it turned into a fight. People started to pick sides. The fight got bigger. And I remember even the band trying to do its part to uh, disperse the crowd by the trumpet player trying to make the sound of a siren with his instrument. Park police officers who'd been there that day tried to break up the fight by driving patrol cars into the crowd. That decision would prove a turning point. Beer bottles started to fly and the fight quickly turned into a riot. Houston police, who had gathered nearby to establish a perimeter well before things turned violent, were summoned to the park for backup. As out of control and monumental as the riot was, even it proved complicated to research in the Houston Police Department archives. There would end up being hospitalizations, arrests, property damage, and trials. But all HPD could provide via an information request were the basic barebone details of the incident, which reads in part, Because of the large crowds that gather at Moody Park on Sunday afternoon and the anti-police atmosphere among the Mexican-American community, I advise the dispatcher to send two units. You know, because that's what you do when there's an anti-police atmosphere. You send the police. Quickly, the crowd's anger turned from targeting each other to targeting HPD. The police were quickly outnumbered. A citywide bulletin went out, calling on all officers to report to the park for backup. Officer T.E. Johnson was the first of two officers to arrive on scene. In this clip, taken by ABC 13, he's breathless and there is blood on his face. Uh, park police are trying to arrest a uh, Latin American male. When they did, well, uh, a bunch of bunch of them started beer, throwing with beer bottles at him and hit him with beer bottles. We tried to get him out the best we could and they busted windows out of my car. I left my car sitting and they burnt my car. Myself and everybody else that wasn't on a priority one scene left where they were at. That's Craig Farrell, who was then a young HPD officer who got the call for backup at the park. I was one of the first 15 or 20 units to get there. Farrell remembers showing up and being handed weapons he'd never used before. I remember getting a long shield, a three-foot riot stick versus the nightstick that, you know, I'd been issued and uh, a helmet. And it doesn't take a lot of common sense to know how to put all the gear on. It would have been nice, obviously, had we been trained in it, but we had not. Police and riot gear formed a line and tried to hold it. The angry attendees flung objects at them wherever they could. Then a group of rioters swarmed an emergency medical vehicle overturned it, and set it on fire. A few protesters then turned their attention to a local news crew reporting at the park. In the following clips, also from ABC 13 and KPRC, the chaos builds and builds. In this first clip, two reporters from Channel 2, Jack Keto and Phil Archer, were attacked as their camera rolled. Keto was hit with a brick in the forehead and stabbed in the back. 
Archer was kicked and stabbed several times and was rescued from the scene by police officers. There was a little fight going on here, and like, uh, cops started coming. I guess all the north side just got pissed off and started rocking it like crazy. Then, a police officer was run over as the news cameras rolled. The police officer was just run down. Police right now are calling for an ambulance as this officer lies seriously wounded here in the street. A car came by with two or three occupants, drove right over and kept on going. Things got progressively worse as it got later in the evening. And I'm absolutely convinced it's by the department's lack of response. They were just holding the line and not actually going in and making arrest of the people that needed to be arrested at that point. They allowed rocks to be thrown, glass bottles to be thrown. You could hear shots being fired in the distance. Kind of an eerie and surreal feeling. As police stood still, the mostly male crowd spilled into the streets, their anger in tow. A few blocks away, at a home where Travis Morales's group, people united to fight police brutality, regularly met, trouble was in the air. We saw smoke and heard sirens, and someone came over and told us that the police had come in trying to mess with some people in Moody Park, and people responded with rocks and bottles. Throwing that at the police, overturned and burned some of their cars, shouting, Viva Jose Campos Torres, Viva Joe Torres. Ed Gonzalez, who is now the Harris County Sheriff, was a young boy at the time and recalls driving through the area to check on his mother's beauty salon, which catered to a Latino clientele near Moody Park. I remember from a distance seeing the black smoke emanating from the ground somewhere, and it seemed in close proximity to where our business was, so we drove by there and we were just kind of caught in the mayhem of the burning of cars. Travis Morales and a few others walked down to meet friends who had been kicked out of the park. Together, holding their banner, they marched down the street, chanting and calling for justice. People drove from all over town to join in. People were very proud that they had stood up, and they were very proud of what they were doing to the police, that they were attacking the police and driving them from the area. Travis had used his bullhorn to tell people not to take their anger out on businesses and to direct it at the police. But still, they threw Molotov cocktails and flaming objects at businesses that Mexican-Americans frequented and caused over half a million dollars worth of damage. The residents of a Mexican-American neighborhood north of downtown Houston today began surveying the damage done during a violent disturbance last night. What had begun as a festive celebration ended in a bloody clash with police. There were decades worth of pent-up outrage that couldn't be held in anymore. Even so, Chief Harry Caldwell continuously belittled the rioters, referring to them over and over again as merely a fight of drunks which got out of hand because of riot factors. A hot day, lots of booze, celebration, and earlier agitation. The morning after the riot, Houston Mayor Jim McCon stood by HPD in a press conference. The Houston Police Department showed restraint uh, beyond what I would consider to be uh, a normal thing. They, they just did a magnificent job of keeping that thing a very explosive situation from uh, really just getting terribly out of hand and becoming a war on the street. In that clip, he's working really hard to sell it, but the community wasn't buying it. 
By the next morning, protesters filled the county jail, the hospital, and the streets. Citizens were taking their complaints to the phone lines, flooding the offices of elected officials with calls for something to be done. Everyone was left on edge. Former Officer Craig Farrell. I had like two hours to go home and report back to the gym the next morning, and the evening shift became the um, response team for the city. Day shift and um, night shift went on 12-hour shifts to handle all the calls, and the evening shift, which I was on, was the response team for wherever there was a hot spot. Latino activists were livid and blamed police for instigating violence with their presence in riot gear, but they also felt a huge sense of pride. The next Monday, Travis Morales's group held a press conference on the steps of City Hall. I said this was a glorious day in the history of the Chicano and Mexicano people where they gave the capitalists and their cops a small dose of the justice they deserved. We defended the rebellion. We said it's right to rebel. It's right for people to rise up against the police. Houston police continued to brace for the worst. Word on the street was that the rioting wasn't over and officers were put on alert. Chief Caldwell, who'd been in office less than a year, had seen things go from bad to worse. He had a community that didn't trust his police. He had police that didn't trust each other or the community. He had news story after news story, painting an image of HPD as a department in freefall, unable to effectively provide order and rife with violence. It was clear that something had to change, and something would. Next time on Chicano Squad, as Houston's new police chief struggles to maintain control of a community and a department on the brink, a new deadly storm is brewing on the horizon. A historic murder wave grips Houston and brings the Latino neighborhoods to their knees. Many of the murders go unsolved, with HPD once more failing the Latino community. And it's clear the people have had enough. The Houston Police Department must rebuild trust within the Latino community before Houston streets become a killing ground. Out of desperation, a bold, risky, and unprecedented experiment is born. And Cecil Mosqueda, our young Latino patrol officer, is right in the middle of it. In esta ciudad, hay necesidad, Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Our associate producers are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Betubiza. Episode 2 was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nashat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design come from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was written and produced for this series by Brownout. Editorial support on this episode from Garrett Crow. Fact-checking by Charlotte Silver. Special thanks to Dwight Watson. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Klijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristela Alonso. If you like this episode and if you think this story is important, one of the best ways to support the show is to share it with your friends and family. Find out more at FrequencyMachine.com slash Chicano Squad. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'll see you in episode three.